chapter 1. That's where we're going to be at. And um, we'll see where we go. I think we'll get through verse 1. No, 2. Verses 1 and 2. Now, I don't know if you can relate to this. Guys probably can relate to this a little more than, than ladies. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, but before I got married, there were times when I would take road trips with my friends. You guys ever do that as a, as a bachelor or a bachelorette? I know my wife took a few. She's told me about some of them. I know there's others that she still refuses to tell me about. But I know that guys aren't the only ones that did these kinds of road trips. And uh, when I would take these road trips with my friends, typically not a lot of planning goes on into those kinds of things, do they? And, and that was the same for me. Very little planning or preparation went into those, those road trips. And consequently, we didn't always know how we were going to get to where we were going. Um, uh, for, for some of you, well, for Jacob, um, younger guys. <laughs> it was before we had Google Maps. or I mean, you had to like actually open up your atlas and, and, and read a map to decide where you want to go. Now you just type in... Siri, take me to wherever, and boom, you're going to have turn-by-turn directions. wasn't like that back then. And uh, we didn't even know often how we were getting where we were going, how much money we were going to need, or what we were going to do um, or see when we even got there. But since I got married to my beautiful wife, um, I can say that this kind of vacationing or road trip has never happened. In fact... Thanks to my wife, there has always been much planning and much preparation that has gone into every trip that we have taken, and partially because I think we've had kids from, from day one, so we've had to think about other people than ourselves. And not to say that you can't do something spontaneous, but even when you wake up in the morning and, and maybe you're tired or you're on a weekend, you say, hey, let's go do this. There's a spontaneity to it, but yeah, there's some planning and preparation that goes into it. And even though there have been times when I can truthfully say that, that we, Autumn and I, maybe not always my fault though, have gotten lost along the way, even though we planned these road trips, we've never left not knowing where we were going to go or how we were going to get there. And furthermore, we've always known how much the trip would cost and we'd never left without taking what was needed. And I don't know about you guys, but now we usually take like 10 times more than the things that we need, except since we started flying with Frontier because Frontier doesn't allow you to take any pack bags, so we only take a backpack for free. But... It's kind of a new development in our, in our road trip experiences. But I mention this as we begin the book of James because starting a new book of the Bible or a study through the new book of the Bible, it, it should be like preparing for a road trip in that it's best to know where you are going, what you can expect to see in order that you might be able to get the most from the journey. And uh, I learned that lesson really well, actually, when we went to, to Europe this summer, because Autumn did a lot of research for us on where we wanted to go and how we, what we wanted to see. And some of those places that if you didn't buy a ticket beforehand, months in advance, like going to the Vatican and the, and the museum there and other places, uh, even uh, to the Colosseum, it was like you weren't getting in. And we saw lots of people who didn't know that that went there that were really disappointed because they didn't know what to expect. They didn't have an overview of, of what they needed to do before they went. Well, studying God's word is like this too. You should be prepared. 
in order to know where you're going to be going, what God wants to reveal to you, and, 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 and how to get most out of that journey. In light of this, I want to outline a couple of things this morning, this evening as we, we do this. I want to answer four questions tonight before we begin the book of James that will prepare us, I think, for the spiritual road trip. Number one, who is James? Okay. Number two, who did he write this letter to? Contextually, that's important. It helps us to see through the lens uh, of, of who it was written to, what James was writing about, and helps us to see what's applicable to our lives in the context in which it was being delivered. Thirdly, we want to understand why James wrote this letter, and lastly, how we can get the most out of this study. In other words, what should we do in light of these things, knowing where we're going, what should we do to prepare for the journey that God would take us on. I love the book of James. It's one of my favorite New Testament books, and it's often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's so practical and so applicable, I think, to our lives today. And because of that, it's probably one of the most hard-hitting books of the New Testament as James just lays it out. Boom, here it is, and this is what you got to do. And if you're not doing this, this is where you're at, and this is what you have to do. And it's just repeated through, through many different things that James deals with. And, and, and um, if we're willing to hear it and receive it, man, you're going to experience some really, really cool things in your walk with God. And, and no matter if you're new in the Lord or if you've been a believer for, for many years, this study has the ability to change your life if you would let it in, in significant ways. So um, that would be my prayer. And uh, if you pray with me, let's uh, join together before we go any further. Father, we pray, God, that as we consider these things that we've just um, thought about, I pray, God, that you would soften our hearts to receive everything that you have for us. God, that you would lay out this foundation of, of, of the roadmap and the journey that we're going to go on by your spirit, Father, so that we may understand, so that we may grasp fully, God, everything that you have for us. Father, we trust you and we rely upon you through this process, knowing, God, that um, you're in control of everything. So we lay it all down at your feet again this evening, Lord, trusting in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for context and just kind of give some, some, some more than just the first two verses, let's read verses 1 through 8 and, and then we'll pick up from there. In verse 1, it says, James. A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I mean, that's a, that's a, that, that should, if nothing else yet in, should get your attention, that is. I mean, who here is lacking something? <laughs> There's a promise here, right? And, and I want to be that person who's lacking nothing, meaning really what, the, what James is telling us is, is out of contentment with what God's given us, no matter what we're going through, so we don't see ourselves as, as, as needing something that we don't have. Another passage of Scripture will go on to say that you are complete, right, in Colossians, in Christ Jesus, that you, are, that you have nothing, you're in need of nothing apart from Him. But so often... We, we find ourselves lacking something, needing something. And so as we read that, it's like, wow, I want that, that I might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so we have a, a, an intent here being delivered to us about what James is hoping for us to glean and gather and understand as a result 
of his message to us. And so he goes on and he says, but let him, or excuse me, in, in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally, <coughs> excuse me, without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he's a double-minded man, he's unstable in all of his ways. Now, in verse 1, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that, that James is identified as the author, clearly by name. And um, he's, the author, he's identified as the author of this letter. And when we read it here, we see that it's, that it's addressed to the 12, twi- 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And this letter is like many other books in the New Testament in that the author identifies himself by name. Now, it's not true with all of them, but it's true with most of them, and it's also the case here, that, that James has identified himself by name as the author in the greeting to those in whom he is writing it. However, there are still some logical deductions that need to be made on our behalf in order to determine exactly who this James was. Because... Um, for a couple of reasons. To begin with, if you have a study Bible, lots of study Bibles who, who, who name an author as the author of this book, lots of the study Bibles in the side margin will either list one or two specific Jameses as a possible author. They'll say either James the Apostle or James the half-brother of Jesus. That's the two typical people who are, who are attributed by Bible scholars as the James that this might be referring to. But when we look at the Gospel accounts and other and in some of the other letters that make up the New Testament, we see that there are actually four men mentioned who have the name James, historically speaking. And one of them is mentioned in Luke chapter 6, verse 16, and again in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, where we have in both of those passages the list of the names of the apostles. And since there were two apostles that were named James, but also two apostles that were named Judas, in that list of the apostles, one of these men, one of these Judases, is always identified as the son of James. And, and, and this is the first James that, that could potentially be the author of this letter that was written to the other church. And in the context of, of, of Judas being identified as the son of James, it's the only times that this James, I know it may begin a little bit confusing, but it's the only time that this James is ever mentioned. And we'll see that he is always mentioned twice to specifically identify this Judas apart from the other Judas. Now, if you were, the, if you were this Judas that is the son of James, you would be grateful that the Holy Spirit spent the time to do this because the other Judas is the betrayer. And I think for all time and eternity, you would be like, you know, I'm Judas, but not the Judas who betrayed. I'm Judas, the son of James. And so, so God does that for us here in those two passages of Scripture and identifying the one Judas apart from the one who had betrayed Jesus. And because of his obscure mention as the, as the son of Judas, it's very unlikely that he's in a candidate in the early church history for one to have written a letter to the other church, specifically this letter, the epistle of James. Now, the second James that we read about in the New Testament was one of the 12 apostles, and he's identified in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, Mark chapter 10, verse 3, and again in in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 13. And this James is identified as James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less, 
in, in those different passages. And he's, he's identified as James the Less or James the, uh, uh, the son of Alphaeus in order to distinguish him from the other apostle who is also named James. But because he's referred to as James the Less, it points us to the fact that he was the less prominent of the two apostles that's often spoken of when we read the gospel accounts or other places in the New Testament. And um, because of this, him being James the Less, most Bible scholars agree, matter of fact, it's a consensus. They, the, none of them suspect or, or would point to this James as being the one who wrote the epistle of James. Now, comes to the third James, another apostle mentioned in scripture. He was the more prominent of the two apostles who were named James. And he is identified in all four of the Gospels as one of the sons of Zebedee. You guys remember him? He, he, he's first mentioned in Mark chapter 3, verse, verse 17, where he's also identified as one of the sons of thunder. James and his brother, anybody? John, yeah. And, and, and this was a title that, had given, that Jesus had given to John and to James in order to describe um, their harsh and impulsive personality, sons of thunder. And, and then he is again mentioned, this, this James the Apostle, the, the brother of John, in Acts chapter 2, verse 12, where he is identified specifically as James, the brother of John, who was killed with the sword by Herod, making him the first of the apostles who was martyred for his faith in Jesus. And I point that out because of significance to, to, our, to our study th this evening, because church history tells us that James was killed by Herod, or that Herod killed James the apostle, the brother of John, in 44 AD. Historically, we know that to be a truth. And even though this letter of James is probably the first book of the New Testament in regards to time frame in which it was written, it's very unlikely that James the apostle wrote it because his death came before almost every scholar's dating of this book of James. So in other words, he was dead before it was written. So, this leads us to the fourth and the last of the James that the Bible mentions, and this would be James, the son of Jesus, or excuse me, the son of Joseph and Mary, the half-brother of Jesus. And if you're like me, who was raised in the Catholic Church, when I first heard that, it was a shocking thing to me <clears throat> to hear that Jesus had a brother, considering the Catholic Church teaches that Jesus was an only child. And they teach that and to, to, to claim that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that, that she conceived as a virgin and she remained a virgin. And that's why she, the, the Catholic Church re, refers to her still to this day as Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus Christ, that she has this perpetual virginity. But this is contrary to what the Bible teaches us. And the Bible clearly teaches us that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus, and she conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. But after Jesus was born, the Bible teaches us, it tells us that she went on to have normal relationships with her husband, Joseph. And we know that in doing so, that they had at least six kids together. <clears throat> and we can determine this from passages of Scripture like Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 through 25, which says, Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel commanded, with him, commanded him, and he took to him his wife and did not know her, and that's knowing her in the biblical sense, meaning referring to sexual relations. It says, until she brought forth her firstborn son. 
That's what the Word of God says. And then if you look at other passages of Scripture, like Mark chapter 6, we see then that Joseph, Joseph and Mary must have went on to have children together in light of what we read in, 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 in um, um, Mark 6, verses 1 through 4, which then goes on to account the fact that Jesus had at least two half-sisters, because it refers to his sisters plurally in that passage, not just singularly, but also four half-brothers at the very least who were then named in that passage of Scripture. And you have Joseph, Judas, Simon, and James. And it was this James, the son of Mary, the half-brother of Jesus, who, mo- who, who most likely wrote this letter to the early church. And, and I believe with under, with, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that's, that's my opinion, but everything leads to that, biblically we're building a case for it, that this is who the author is, James the half-brother of Jesus. And we can best determine this because according to Acts chapter 12, verse 17, and again in Acts 21, verse 17, and then in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, three independent passages of Scripture given to us as testimony by two apostles, Peter and Paul. They both acknowledge this James, the brother of Jesus, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so it makes sense if you have James as the leader of the church in Jerusalem that he would be the one, the first one, to write a letter to the early church. Additionally, we know from the historical writings of Josephus, we know that this James, the half-brother of Jesus, was alive when this letter was written. Because Josephus historically accounts that it was in 65 AD when James was put to death. And he writes and he says that James, he was taken by the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the same ones who had put Jesus to death, that they became very angry at James and because they became very angry at him as leader of the church because many Jews had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. This is what Josephus writes. Consequently, these Jewish leaders took James to the top of the temple and they tried to make him convince the crowds below that Jesus was not the Messiah in order to spare his life. But Josephus tells us that James did the opposite as he used the opportunity in faith to proclaim Jesus to be the Messiah. As a result, Josephus says the religious leaders pushed James off the top of the temple, and when he hit the ground, he was then beaten to death with a club. Now, there are a couple of interesting things about James that I want to point out to you. And the first is that initially, while Jesus was still alive, being the half-brother of Jesus, he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't believe this until after Jesus had risen from the grave. In fact, the Bible teaches us that James, along with his other brothers, believed that Jesus was crazy. And it wasn't until Jesus had risen from the grave and had appeared to him in the flesh that James began to believe. And the account of that resur- of Jesus appearing to James is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's a mention of it. The other thing to note about James is that according to church historian, um, he's, he, was, he was actually a Greek, but he was a, a, a church historian. Uh, Hegesippus is his name. He, he wrote this about James. He said, he frequently, this is a quote, he frequently entered the temple alone and was frequently found situated upon his knees asking for forgiveness of the people, so that his knee, so much so that his knees became hard after the manner of a camel. 
and on an account of always bending down upon knee while worshiping God and asking forgiveness for the people. And some of you may have heard that James had this nickname, Old Camel Knees. Well, that's where it comes from, from the writings of Hega, of um, Hegesippus, who, who made this historical n- note about James and, and, what, and, and, and really his devotion to God and how it was, was seen in this light. And in light of these things and many other things, we see that James was a devout man. He was a devout man and he was a humble man who could have very well have identified himself as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, right? James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, I write to you. Or he could have identified himself as the half-brother of Jesus. I might have done that. Just saying. Spit will sit up here and go, hey, listen, guys. I'm, I'm the brother of Jesus. <laughs> and you need to hear what I have to say. You know, talk about name dropping. That's a pretty good one. But because he was humble... He, in verse 1, simply identifies himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. What humility, and and it's really an example for us of of, of our own relationship with God and and, 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 and that position and that spot and that place where we need to be. That, That word bondservant, as many of you know, is the Greek word doulos, which literally means slave by choice. A slave by choice. And this idea of a bondservant is first told to us in the book of Deuteronomy. And according to chapter 15, where it kind of explains what a a bondservant is, it it tells us that if there was a Jewish man or woman who had a debt that they could not pay, that they could then sell themselves into slavery in order to pay that debt. And Jewish law stated that even at the end of seven years, if that debt was not paid off, all of those who had sold themselves into slavery were then made free. It was referred to as a year of jubilee. But if that person who had been the slave, either after they had paid their debt off by serving their master or when the year of jubilee came, if they did not want to leave because they had come to love their master, it says that then they could then pierce their ear. Their master would take them out and drive an all through their ear and they would put a gold ring in that ear. It would represent that position that they had they had decided to take, a choice that they had made. And it was a choice to freely serve their master for the rest of their lives as servant. And this, referring back to that Old Testament understanding of things, this is how James chose to identify himself to those he wrote the letter to. And even us today, by way of example for us to follow, I think. By someone who could have very well said, hey, I'm the leader of the church. Or I'm the son, or I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the brother of Jesus. Yet he chose to identify himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that James chose to serve to God, as Josephus pointed out, as we read earlier, even though it cost him his life. A bondservant unto death. Now, some of you may remember, some of you seasoned saints, a Bob Dylan song titled, you got to serve somebody. Some of you are like, yeah, I remember that song. And, and in that song, he sings this. He says, but you're going to, I can sing it to you if you want. No. <laughs> he says, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. 
And the fact of the matter is, is we're all going to serve someone or something. And the question is, as we prepare to go through this study, as we look at our own lives, foundationally we need to ask ourselves, who is it or what is it that we are serving? In the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verses 14 through 15, we're told that prior to Joshua's death, this is at the end of the book, after the land's been taken and battled for, you know, and, and, and Israel has been dispersed to, 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 to claim the inheritance of the promised land. We're told that prior to Joshua's death that he gathered all the children of Israel together like Moses had done before they entered into the land. And he said to them this in verses 14 through 15. He said, <clears throat> he said There now for fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other sides of the river and in Egypt. He says, Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Because he knew they were going to serve someone or something. He says, if it's not the Lord, then choose. Today, this day, choose. Whether the gods of which your father served that were on the other sides of the river or the gods of the Amorites and the lands in which you dwell. But he said this, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And like Joshua, each of us must decide who or what we are going to serve. Now, as we continue on in the next part of verse 1, we have the answer to the second question for a roadmap or preparation for, for the study that needs to be answered. As we're told that James had written this letter to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now this may seem weird to us, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, and we might think, well, maybe he's writing it to the Jews that are dispersed through the land of Israel, but if you contextually know the time in which James is writing, and you go to the books of book of Acts and, and see what had happened to the early church, you begin to understand what this means. And what this is telling us is that James had written this letter to Jewish believers, specifically at a time when they were being persecuted, greatly persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. Consequently, many of these believing Jews were forced out of Jerusalem. You guys might remember that account from the book of Acts. They were not only forced out of Jerusalem, but they were forced out of Israel. And they went into the surrounding Gentile lands and countries in order to escape persecution from their countrymen. And this is important for us to understand and keep in mind as we study this letter because it helps to give us the proper context for what James has written now, the interesting thing is that this word scattered that is used here in verse 1 is the Greek word dyspora. And, and it carries the idea, it's an agricultural term. It was used in, in, by people who farmed, and it, and, it, and it carries with us this idea of scattering seeds, right? Dyspora, to take the seeds out and to scatter it. And that's very interesting that James would use this. And in light of this, we see that when, that when, when these Jewish believers were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire into these Gentile lands as a result of the persecution from their Jewish believers, we see that James has acknowledged them in a time of suffering, but he's acknowledging them in the beginning of this letter, in the greeting of this letter, that what, hap what had happened to them was literally a scattering of the seed. Those who were scattered abroad, those who had been dyspora, literally cast out and spread out by God in, in, in an agricultural kind of way. In that, the good news of Jesus was being scattered throughout 
or, or scattered through these persecuted believers into many new places that it had never been before. And according to Acts chapter 11, we see that in spite of the persecution and of the attempts to destroy the early church, that as a result of this dispersion through, through, from Jerusalem into all these other lands that they fled to, we see that much fruit was produced as a result of the early church persecution. This is the context for this letter being written. This is who James was writing it to. Nevertheless, these Christian Jews who had been scattered now throughout this Roman Empire, and, and really you, you kind of see the sovereignty of God in all this even greater because we know that when Jesus was on uh, the mountaintop before he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, he gave them the great commission, right? He said, take what I have taught you, the things that you have seen, and go out from Jerusalem to Samaria and to Judea and to all the ends of the earth. Well, the thing about it is, is we know that they were pretty comfortable there in Jerusalem, that there wasn't a whole lot of going out, was there? But God used the persecution to get his children to do what he had commanded them to do. It's a really cool thing. But these Jewish Christians who had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire, because of that, they were facing now many new problems. For example, being followers of Jesus, they had not only been rejected by their families, but by their own countrymen. And being Jews, they were not welcomed by these Gentiles whom they had now fled to. They were, they were refugees. <laughs> and knowing this helps us to understand why James writes then in verse 2, if you look there, and instructs them about the various trials that they were now going through. But this is only one reason for why James had written this letter. And as we read on, it's evident that James had a desire to address many things, many specific things. And I want to point out that every New Testament letter has its own theme and its own purpose. For example, when Paul wrote to the, 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 the letter to the Romans, it was in order to prepare the Roman Christians for his intended visit, and to teach them more about the grace of God. It's a wonderful book to understand and know God's grace. That's the, the, the main theme or the main purpose of that letter. And, and likewise, when he wrote his first letter to the church at Corinth, it was in order to correct certain problems that were going on within the church, that the, the early church was facing there as far as one that was very worldly, we know, right? And corruption had come in, sin had come in, and Paul was dealing with those some things there. And again, Paul's letter to the Galatians was written to a group of churches. The, the churches in Galatia, we're told, and it was in order to warn them against legalism and against the false teachings of those who were coming in and trying to draw people back under the law once they had been set free by the grace of God. And as we read this letter of James, we discover that he had written to the church, to the Jewish believers who had been dispersed and that were fleeing persecution in order to deal with some specific problems that they were having in their personal lives and within their church fellowships. And as I already pointed out, they were obviously going through difficult trials, which, which James addresses and, and counsels them and encourages them in, in these first eight verses, trials, he says, which were a testing of their faith, which James says is a good thing. God's in it. 
Additionally, they were facing temptations as we read on and we'll study in the weeks to come that they were facing temptations to enter into sin. And you can imagine that as they were now outside of that shell of protection, that that close unity and fellowship that they had there in Jerusalem where there really wasn't a whole lot of of pagan temptation or worldly temptation, they had now been dispersed out and they were sent into the world that there was all kinds of new temptations that they were facing. And James writes about them as some of these people were being tempted now to enter into these other kinds of sins. Some of them were showing favoritism, furthermore, to the rich, while others were being told were being robbed by these rich people. And apparently some of them were even competing for positions within the church. Wanting a place of hierarchy, and, and, and particularly, as James addressed it, in some of those who wanted to be teachers, that wanted to rule over others. And one of the major problems in the church that they were facing, as we read from this and to study it out, if you've read through it yet, you'll probably know, but there was a failure on the part of many. This is a, 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 one of the key things that James addresses in this book, but there, there was a failure on the part of many of these Jewish believers to live what they professed to believe to live what they professed to believe. In, in other words, that their faith was not evident in the way that they were living their lives. And we have that famous passage of Scripture that says, let us not only be, be hearers of the Word of God, but doers. And he goes on to talk about, how, about faith and works and, and how, how our faith is evident by the way we live, by the works that we do. And, and we know that, that James was dealing with this within the church there at this time. Furthermore, we're also told that they had problems with controlling their tongues. And this, and this was causing divisions among them. And James in this, this passage of Scripture gives us all these wonderful illustrations of what the tongue is like, how it can control the body like, like a rudder controlling a ship, and how it's like, like, even, it's like a forest fire, and even a little fire can consume great things. And, and he's warning them about the tongue. And, and, and not only that, there were, there were those within the church who had come to have this, this ungodly love for worldly things. And again, think about the context. They were in the world in a way that they had never been before, and they were seeing things, and they were falling prey to that. A lust for worldly things. Some who were, there were others who were simply just flat out just being disobedient to the word of God, and others who had strayed away from the Lord. But as we consider these things, it's safe to say that these problems that the early church were facing, you know what, they, they don't appear to be much different than the problems that the church is faced with today, does it? Very applicable things. For we certainly have people in our churches who are going through trials. Those who are suffering for one reason or another. We also have members of the church who talk in one way but live in another way. Furthermore, there are many of us who have a love for the world. And without a doubt, there are many other of us who just can't control our tongue. Sometimes mine gets away from me. Praise God I had this opportunity in Juarez to, to truly completely lose control of my tongue. But... By God's Holy Spirit, I think I was mostly convicted because there were other Christians around me. I don't know how I would have responded if I'd have been alone. But, you know, to be able to, 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 to fight that battle, to, to learn how to control your tongue, is still a problem today. And so, so um, we see that these are reasons for why James had written this letter. And, and I'm coming to a point here I want you all to see, because this is the theme, this is the main purpose for what James has written to us, all of these things. And, and we see that he had written this letter, and he's dealing with problems that were relevant to the church then, that are still relevant to us today. But as a whole, understand that James wasn't 
discussing all these assortment of miscellaneous problems in order just to deal with specific things. He's really getting to a, a, a core problem. He's really pointing us to, to a root issue. And that root issue or the main theme of this whole letter is spiritual maturity. If you want to boil it all down, all these little things that are figuring out that James is dealing with, what he's really drawing our attention to is an an, an issue or a heart problem of spiritual maturity. That's what this book is about. It's about being spiritually mature. In other words, these Jewish Christians that James was writing to, they were simply not growing up in the Lord, in their faith. In other words, these Jewish Christians um, that, 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 that James, well, put it this way. I believe that the main message of this letter to the church then and, and, and for us today is simply this need for us to become spiritually mature. Spiritually mature Christians don't love the things of the world. Spiritually mature Christians know how to control their tongue. You see what I'm saying? And we look at all these other problems and we know what the answer is. The answer is, 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 is to, to be spiritually mature, to grow in faith and spiritual maturity. In short, James is telling us this. This is the message. This is kind of the hard-hitting part of it. And we're going to see that it's just really boiled down to these concise, clear thoughts. He's saying, grow up. Have you ever had that conversation with one of your kids? And you go on and on and on and on, and you really get down to the end of it, and you're just like, you just grow up? And I love it that James kind of just brings it to that because I'm the type of guy that I just, okay, just, just give it to me, you know? And then I usually go in the corner and cry a little bit. But I, I just need it spoken to me straight. James is a straight shooter. And what he's shooting to us in, in a very concise manner is this, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. In fact, five times in the letter, the James uses this word perfect. Which is five chapters, five times he uses this word perfect, which is the Greek word teleos. And it is a word that means literally mature or complete. So when James writes over and over again here about being a perfect man, we know that it's not in relationship to being a sinless person, but rather he's referring to one who is mature or one who has grown up in their faith. In light of this, I believe spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in a Christian's life. James writes in such a time as this to believers like this, and he says, guys, grow up. Be mature. And in the church today, it is the greatest need, I think, that the church has to become spiritually mature. Sadly, too many churches are playpens for babies instead of learning places for adults today. Many Christians are not mature enough to eat solid food that they need, so they have to be fed on spiritual milk. And as the Apostle Paul in the book of Hebrews who addressed this very same issue to the Hebrews, and he says in chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need some to teach you again, someone to teach you again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is only a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, and that is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good or what is good. 
and what is evil. And man, I'm telling you what, guys, when we live in this time where we have so many people, like it says in the book of, of Timothy, so many people who are calling good evil and evil good, we have this need to be able to discern what is good and what is evil, to be spiritually mature. As I end this evening, before I call Justin back up here, the fourth and last question I wish to answer in order to prepare us for this journey through our study of the book of James is this question of how can we get the most out of this study? How can we get the most out of it? What do we need to do? And since the main theme is spiritual maturity, I think that we first must have to be completely honest, searching our own heart, asking God to do so, and determine where we lack that spiritual maturity in our own lives, and pray to God, asking him to reveal the areas that we need to grow up in. And as we look at all these various problems, these fingering things that are a result of spiritual immaturity, you know what's going to happen? It's going to be like coming to the Word of God as a mirror. Sound familiar? In order to see ourselves in light of God's Word and go, that's me. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this tongue that is like a fire? Or from this lust for the things of the world? Or whatever these things that we can look at that identify as a mark of, of, of an immaturity in our, in our own lives. And as, 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 we, as God reveals these areas that we need to grow up in, as we look at each chapter, we will go through, God's going to direct our attention to a specific marker. Each chapter has a specific marker that identifies, that will identify a mature Christian. There are specific markers that James points out that identify someone who is a mature Christian. And in light of these marks or these markers, we need to honestly look at ourselves and seek to grow spiritually. So as we continue on in chapter 1, what we're going to see, I'm going to give you these markers, okay, as an as a, as a outline for you to go through with me as we study this and have God speak to us. And in chapter, chapter 1, we're going to see that the first mark of a mature of a mature Christian is that they joyfully endure trials and that they are patient during times of testing. Who here thinks they can grow in spiritual maturity in that area? I mean, yeah, I do, or unless you're all like, yeah, every time I go through a trial, it's just like, I look forward to it because I have such great joy. Lord, give me more. And you just patiently endure that testing, waiting for God to do that fiery furnace work inside of you right? But James says that's a mark of someone who's spiritually mature. They have joy in times of trial. They patiently wait upon the Lord during those times of testing. Then when we get to James chapter 2, James points out the fact that a mature Christian practice, practices the truth. Think about that for just a second. A mature Christian practices the truth. He just doesn't know what is true. He practices what is true. In other words, their actions, the way, li the way they live, lines up with their faith. Chapter 2, it's the faith chapter, right? In the works chapter. And the whole idea behind that is that a mature believer practices the truth. Then, in chapter 3, we're told that a mature Christian has power over his tongue. It's real simple. There's all, James goes into great detail, and we're going to spend a lot of time there, but a mature Christian has, a power, has power over his tongue. 
I've met very few people like that, to be honestly, to be completely honest with you, where I, I look at them and I see their ability to just be quiet and listen and to, to think before they speak. And, and I tell you what, people like that are people who I remember and people who I go, man, I want to be like that. That guy's mature. He actually examples, he exudes a maturity that I desire to have. Um, in chapter 4, James identifies the mature Christian as a peacemaker and not a troublemaker. Um, yeah. A marker. So, so as, as Eric says, oh, great, obviously we're all probably doing that to some degree because, because those things are intended to, as James points to these these deficiencies possibly that we all see within ourselves, we should see that it's a lack of spiritual maturity and go, okay, God, these are areas that I need to grow in. <coughs> Work that you need to do to me. And lastly, in chapter 5, the last marker of a mature Christian that James calls to our attention is the fact that a mature Christian will first turn to prayer in times of trouble. Now, I think we all turn to prayer in times of trouble, but the question is, is that the first place that we go? You know, sometimes we turn to despair, fret, worry. I mean, those are, those are things that we're all familiar with, but it's usually after we've gone to a major, we go visit fret, worry, discouragement, anxiety, any one of those kinds of things before we, we usually go there before we turn to, to prayer. You know, and, and those things, fortunately, God uses those things to, to drive us to our knees so that we do come to him in prayer, so that we ultimately come to him. But a mature believer, in, 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 in times of trouble, a mature believer falls on their knees and cries out to God. And when they do that, comes back to chapter 1, in times of trouble, then they have the joy and then they have the peace. So these are markers, and I would encourage you, hopefully you've taken those down, I would encourage you to read through it on your own, kind of glean them as an outline, and, and, and see them as the, the, um, the main theme and message of everything that we're studying through as we funnel that all back to God's call in our lives even today to grow in our own spiritual maturity. Justin, if you want to come back up, uh, where'd you go? Oh, there you are. And uh, um, we're going to prepare for time of worship and prayer. So Father, thank you God for this time together. Thank you for this introduction, this book. Lord, I'm super excited to be able to, to share it um, with my brothers and sisters. And I pray God that you would teach us as you always will by your Holy Spirit. We believe your word to be truth. And God, we believe that you have great and wonderful things to teach us um, as we study your word together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.